It's a Thursday, April the 7th, year of our Lord 2022 rolls along, getting into April. Boy, the year just goes fast, don't it, folks? Hope you and yours are well wherever you are across the street or around the world. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Welcome to Herd Tell. We got a couple different stories. We're going to try to turn down the noise of the news cycle on today. Uh, There's some trouble over in Pakistan. A lot of international news focusing justly on Ukraine and Russia, but there's some stuff going on in Pakistan we need to touch in on briefly just to keep an eye on in the future. Also, great story in the program of a guy, they're going to take him to MIT and scan his brain and see how it works. Why? Because they want to know how he can speak practically any language he hears. He speaks over 30 of them, at least in part, and counting. And he even tried to learn a new one while getting his MRI scanned from the people doing it. An amazing story that we'll end our program with. Also, uh, we've covered the primary in Ohio, the GOP primary for the U.S. Senate seat there. Uh, It is a dumpster fire. It is another embarrassment. And two of the primary candidates in that race, Josh Mandel and J.D. Vance, have really embarrassed themselves with their new campaign ads. We're going to touch on that in a little bit. Great guest today, Lindsey Kaiser. Uh, We're going to talk about gas, natural gas. That is the driving force behind a lot of what Russia is doing geopolitically, how they artificially created a crisis before they invaded Ukraine and how those two things probably go together now, how you're not going to deal with Russia unless you deal with Gazprom. What is Gazprom? Folks need to know about that. And some of the things we need to be doing here, infrastructure-wise and policy-wise, to be not only more energy independent, but to be an energy exporter to our friends and colleagues on the other side of the globe so that they have friendly hands instead of foreign powers to have to deal with. Lindsey Kaiser on the program today talking about that, another Young Voices contributor. But first, let's start right here with Russia and the Ukraine. Um, The senior administration official has come out and said something that is just not true. Uh, From the Washington Post here, top White House official says Russia has been, this is a quote, completely ostracized from the global economy because of its Ukraine invasion. Uh, This is part of a new sanctions package that's being rolled out because of the war crimes that are being discovered daily. Uh, We covered some of those on the program all where the problem is here on its face of it. That's just not true. Now, if they had prefaced it by saying they have been ostracized from the West, they've been ostracized from Europe, they've been ostracized from freedom loving countries, then that would be accurate. Then Russia would have been ostracized. But the truth is they're not. Now, these sanctions are going to bite. They are going to hurt. They're going after the oligarchs. They should do that. They're going after some of the families of the oligarchs specifically. They should do that. But let's not mince words here. If you're not going after Gazprom, the gas giant that fuels the oligarchy that runs Russia like a criminal organization, you're not really going after them. And China is not boycotting them. And large parts of Africa is still doing business with them. And large portions of the Middle East are still doing business with them. And parts of Asia are still doing business with them. They're cut off from the West, but they're not cut off. And we're fooling ourselves by pretending otherwise. The administration needs to be plain in its language here, both geopolitically and domestically. Yes, we're laying heavy sanctions on Russia. They're not meaningless sanctions. They're meaningful. But don't overplay them because you're going to end up looking silly later on when they don't have the effect you think we are. Unfortunately, because the Ukrainians are putting up such a great fight for their homeland and they have stymied Russia's 
original goal of taking over Kiev and putting in a puppet government, this is looking like it's going to be quite a long war, unfortunately. This is going to go for a while. And part of it going for a while means we're going to have plenty of time to review what has and hasn't worked so far. The administration should be forthcoming and saying, hey, we have heavy sanctions, but China isn't participating. Africa isn't participating. The Middle East is not participating. They still have lines. To come out and say something like they are completely ostracized from the global economy when it's just not true, it's setting up a pattern that this White House and their comp shop has done over and over again, over-promising and under-delivering. You're our president, Mr. Biden, and your comm shop speaks for you as your constituent, as a citizen, somebody who wants you to succeed because you're president, even though I don't agree with you on a whole lot of things and I didn't vote for you. You need to get this under control. Quit over-promising. Quit under-delivering. It's bad, especially when you go from optic to optic who just wants to have this optic win of the news cycle with no plan and no obvious understanding that this is going to blow up in your face. We need to settle in with a policy of a long war where we're doing all the sanctions we can in the West, but acknowledge that China and other parts of the world are not doing the same. China's a big part of the global economy. You may have heard. We talk about it a lot on this program, and acting like they don't exist isn't going to help anybody. We want the Ukrainians to succeed. We want them to have their freedom from the Russian boot hill. We need to be giving them economic and military aid to do that because they need to carry this fight. We can't get involved with it with troops on the ground. We're all on the same page with that. But the Biden administration needs to be upfront about us with the practicalities of these sanctions. Don't overpromise. You are going to underdeliver on this. We can have biting sanctions and say they're not complete because other people aren't helping us. Be honest with the American people. They're going to feel pain at home from these sanctions. They're going to feel pain at home because of the actions of Vladimir Putin. Just be honest about it, and we'll support it. More Hertel right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. We've covered the Ohio uh, GOP primary for U.S. Senate a couple times on here. We had Brady Leonard on to talk about it. Uh, the two uh, two of the principals in that, J.D. Vance, who you well know I do not care for for a multitude of reasons, and Josh Mandel, who's on his third attempt to try to get this Senate seat, are two of the people involved, and they are the fuel that is stoking the dumpster fire that is this primary. They both came out with ads that are, quite frankly, embarrassing. Um, J.D. Vance's, uh, you can go and watch these. We'll link to them. Uh, starts his race at, are you a racist and do you hate Mexicans? It kind of goes downhill from there. Josh Mandel is him walking on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, talking about how he's not a racist. If you think those sound cringy, just wait until you actually watch the ads. But anyway, I wrote in Ordinary Times about both of these um, and again, watch the ads first before you read what I wrote about in my piece at ordinary-times.com. We have them right there. You can watch them. But I wrote this. I said, there's plenty in both of those ads if you really want to dissect them. But J.D. Vance's last line of because whatever they call us, we will put American first. That's quote is as good a place to start as any. 
They versus we is the heart of the American first sloganeering and the base instinct pandering on things like race, immigration and other issues. Folks who use America first as a sort of abracadabra to make whatever they said before or after fully justified. The underlying premise isn't what puts America first, but who gets to define what America is and who is entitled to be an American. It isn't new, creative or terribly original. Vance's blaming of immigrants for everything up to and including his mother's own addiction, which he detailed in his book, Hillbilly Elegy would fit right into the anti-immigration sentiments of the late 1800s or the early 1900s, or as Vance proves, today. Illegal immigration is a problem to solve, but why do that when you can blame death, destruction, and Democrat electoral wins on it instead? Them is to blame, don't you see? And no matter what them say, we're the true Americans, don't you know? No need for accountability, restraint, or anything but the unbridled, passionate righteousness of we versus the otherized, dehumanized, and unamericanated them. Meanwhile, Josh Mandel went to Selma and learned absolutely nothing. The bridge has become a place for politicians and others to come and get a photo op, but what Josh should have done is gone and read Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. That's not as popular, of course, and not just because there isn't a video of it or landmark that still stands to go and get your picture taken in front of. For Mandel, a candidate who declares over and over again his target audience, he will legislate if elected with, quote, this is him directly saying, with the Constitution in one hand and the Bible in the other, end quote, there would be real lessons to learn there, unlike the oft-quoted judge by the color of their skin portion of King's I Have a Dream speech that Mandel bastardized into, and this is a direct quote from the ad, Martin Luther King marched right here so skin color wouldn't matter in his ad. Josh isn't advocating for equality in a segregated country the way King was to a national audience. Mandel is demanding on behalf of his core audience that the problem just go away and not be talked about at the detriment of those who still have legitimate issues to be worked out. King's missive from that jail cell, directed at Christian church leaders, by the way, in the South, holds unlearned lessons for the obstinate ones who use the demand of colorblind society more as insulation from the hard parts of living in a diverse, pluralistic society than a noble goal of humanity. The duplicitous nature of using such a term to end debate and silence legitimate grievances certainly fits King's assessment of overtly religious people who, on the issues of race, direct quote from the letter of Birmingham jail right here, stands on the sideline and merely mouths pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. But come to think of it, pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities is a pretty good caption to why both J.D. Vance and Josh Mandel are unfit for office. Both have well-documented past statements and views that are contradictory to their latest public personas. The Harvard-educated Silicon Valley-enriched Vance and the twice-failed Senate candidate Josh Mandel are trying to surf the current waves of Trumpian sentiment to high office in the state dubbed the cradle of presidents. The GOP primary in the Buckeye state has been an utter embarrassment to the people of Ohio, the Republican Party in particular, and the country as a whole. Candidates like Vance and Mandel posing and preening from buzzworded controversies to viral issues and back again, trying to look more American first than the other. But like the official state tree, however you think it looks, every single part of it from the flower to the foliage to the eponymous nut itself is highly toxic if ingested, or in this case, elected. That's me writing in Ordinary-Times.com. More hotel right after this. Thank you.
Oh, welcome back to Her Tell. We got another one of our great Young Voices contributors excited about this one. This is going to be a good conversation. We're going to talk a little gas, natural gas, uh, and things that are going on in the world. Uh, Lindsay Kaiser, she's a student at the University of Michigan. She's been writing quite a bit about this in a lot of places like International Apology Digest, uh, Detroit News. Lindsay, thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Let's start big picture because we, we talk about Russia's natural gas and their energy production, uh, and we talk about the geopolitics of it. Let's get the nomenclature right for folks. Um, Gazprom. Folks may not be familiar with it. Uh, if you watch a lot of Premier League soccer, they've got that around because they used to have a sponsorship <laughs> until two weeks ago. So you might have seen the name Gazprom. That's what we're really talking about here because Gazprom, that's the energy giant out of Russia that also has all the ties with the oligarchs. That's where this whole ball of mess kind of starts is with Gazprom. So work us through that so that we know what we're talking about here. Yeah, certainly. You know, it's funny, um, Andrew, within the last maybe year and a half, Gazprom, which used to be, it used to supply 35% of um, European natural gas um, throughout Europe, like not even just domestically within Russia, but throughout the whole continent. And then within the last two years, not only due to COVID, but also due to um, Gazprom's, you know, board suggesting that they curb supply for their own benefit, it shrunk to 17%. And so Europe is struggling to find natural gas resources because their biggest producer just sort of decided, hey, why don't we curb supply, even though we have this increased demand, because we know we can, right? Because if they're the biggest producer, people are going to pay through the nose, Um so, yeah. And so then it comes to 2022 and, you know, Russia, Putin very interestingly decides to invade Ukraine. And all of a sudden, not only is the supply artificially curbed, but it's also naturally curbed because there's a war going on. And there are countries in Western Europe and Eastern Europe saying we can't take this dirty oil. Right. Like from someone who is, you know, invading a democracy. Um, and so we've got this big energy crisis in in Western Europe that started you know, in 2020, 2021, not just due to COVID supply chain issues, but due to Russian aggression, and then really has hit um, now in 2022. Now, if this was a law and order uh, episode, we'd call it a theory of the case. The theory of the case being there, uh, Russia has spent a lot of time, they've been pretty open about it. If you read a lot of overseas media, they were trying to make themselves sanction proof. They were really worried. They've been talking about internal controls. They've uh, changed how they do a lot of their acquisition stuff. They knew sanctions were coming. Let's be adults here. They knew this invasion was coming long before the rest of us did. It sure looks like they artificially depressed the thing because they were scared. Like, look, the one hammer they got against us is they can cut back on our supply to them. If we cut it back ahead of time, there'll be even more of a demand. There'll be even less chance of that. That had to be the thinking, right? right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, what's even more interesting is that um, President Biden released a statement uh, I believe on March 28th, where he was detailing um, how, you know, the U.S. has responded to Russian aggression and whatnot. And he made a claim that um, Russia, Russia's thwarting, like Russia's entry into Ukraine was was obvious or was was going was foreseen, I guess, by the U.S. But nothing in his you know policies suggests that nothing in the negotiations that occurred in January between Putin and Biden, between Putin and Europe said that anybody was expecting him to go into Ukraine. And so I find it a bit ironic that the president now will say, oh, well, we saw this coming when nobody claimed to see this coming. And the people who did see this coming were told that they were ridiculous. 
Yeah, it's interesting to me because for once, it looks like from everything we're being, we can see, our intelligence got it right. Now, to be fair here, our people's yeah. like, well, why did they get this right and get everything? Well, because our entire intelligence apparatus has been pointed at Russia for 60 some years. We're actually pretty good at that one. We're well established with it. The intelligence was right, but intelligence is just that. It's a tool if you don't take anything actionable yeah. about it. And here's the bigger part of this, too, for me is. We've known for decades that Putin is a bad faith actor and that they're also a massive energy producer. So even if you didn't know this exact thing for the last year or so, we've had about nine months of this intelligence that they thought this invasion was going to come. We've known they were a bad faith actor. At some point, they were going to do this. They've held it over Germany's head before. They've held it over the EU's right. head before. It's not like this is completely out of the blue, even without that piece of it, is it? Because this has been going on for decades. Right. Yeah, certainly. And it's it's funny because, you know, you mentioned the sanctions. I mean, when Russia invaded Crimea back in 2014, we really increased sanctions on them. Um, the U.S., before the invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. had over 800 active you know, sanctions, if you will, or like export or import controls placed on Russia. Um, and all it did was strengthen Putin and strengthen his economy and strengthen his control over, you know, the Russian quote unquote democracy um, in order to you know, take better control of the economy and sort of revert to more of a command style manufacturing economy that that they could use to, you know, withstand this assault that the West and the U.S. has brought on them since they invaded Ukraine. So, I mean, yeah, this goes back at least, what is it, eight years to Crimea, if not 60, like you said, all the way for the intelligence that we've been gathering since the Cold War. <laughs> now, to be fair, I was one of them, too. Like, we, we knew he had the capability. We knew he has he has lusted over uh, Ukraine and the other former Soviet republics to put them back in. Right. We we know all that. Look, I was one of them too. I thought maybe this would be more brinksmanship. Maybe it would be they would try to do a soft revolution and then come in and take it over. Uh, maybe we were just <laughs> hoping against hope that he wasn't going to do a full bore invasion. So I'm not going to knock the president real big on that. However, sure. now that it's here, I still find that the president is doing a lot of optics over substance, especially when it comes to the energy stuff. He he was just over in Europe. And he made right. the announcement about natural gas. And he said, well, we're going to release 16 BCMs, billion BCMs of natural gas. and We're going to start exporting it. Well, that sounds great. The problem is you already told us the numbers. They're trying. Europe needs 540 billion units. They're trying to replace 40% of their energy sector. That's like 6% of what they're trying to replace, not just what they need. It's a yeah. good thing we need to export energy, but that's a drop in the bucket compared to what they really need to. This, this, There's a lot of optics. And then when you look at the actual policies here, it's not matching up on the numbers, is it? No, it's not. And it's interesting because a lot of what the administration has supported is a push toward clean energy as the future energy, as saying, we're going to take this energy crisis. We're going to take this lack of you know, available natural gas. And instead of opening up, tapping into more of our reserves, um, and even allowing, you know, the lease on public lands that we know have oil and natural gas resources beneath them, um, we're going to focus on implementing clean energy policy. And, you know, on the one hand, like, that's fantastic, right? Like, clean energy should be the future of energy policy. I think, of course, almost everybody would argue that clean energy is ideal in the long run um, to help mitigate climate change. But we have people in Ukraine with no homes. We have Americans who are seeing $2 higher gas prices per gallon than they saw maybe even two years ago. Um, and we have in Germany and Western Europe, we have Germany is paying $2.35 per liter of gas. First, that's higher than the price of gas was during the global financial crisis of 2008. Secondly, that's $8.90 a gallon. 
I mean, I can't imagine how Americans would react if that became our reality. Um, but there is a huge immediate shortage of natural gas and oil. Um, and you're right, the Biden administration has been pretty keen on using its optics and saying, oh, we're going to partner with Western Europe and bring all this natural gas and bring these energy resources over to help Ukraine. Um, but I think it's, you know, what about helping the Americans? We, our energy sector is suffering from this. And there are ways to sort of reduce um, our reliance on Russian energy. And part of it would be increasing, you know, U.S. natural gas resources and, and availability at home. Yeah, I'm talking to uh, Lindsay Kaiser about uh, gas issues around Ukraine and our own export-import capabilities. Uh, we're going to talk about our own uh, importing and exporting. of, But just to finish up in Europe before we come back off of Ukraine, folks probably don't realize, they understand Russia is an energy giant. Almost all those pipelines for Russia, this is why they were trying to do the Nord Stream. They were trying to cut right. off Ukraine and go around it. Just explain to folks the, the A to B part of this. We're talking about it in big picture geopolitics. Uh, I'm a logistics guy. Like I understand stuff's got to go A to B. These pipelines out of Russia and all the other areas that they're getting their oil from from the uh, western and eastern reaches of their, you know, people don't understand how big Russia is. It's 11 time zones. Um, all those pipelines went through Ukraine to get into mm -hmm. Europe. It, it's not just that the wars in Ukraine, this this is this is just a stop gag right in the middle of how all the energy was getting into Europe and Europe by their own policies, made themselves more reliant on it in the last few years than they probably should have. They're realizing it now. Just, just logistically, there's not a lot of good answers in the near-term future to fix this, is there? No, there certainly aren't. And I think, you know, part of it is, um, like the Wall Street Journal reported that just last night, Russia carried out missile strikes against Ukrainian fuel depots, which simply just continues to exacerbate the fuel crisis in Ukraine and that which would serve the rest of Europe. Um, and as much as, you know, the U.S. has opened all seven ports of its liquefied natural gas, um, all of the ports, um, you know, it takes a lot longer to ship natural gas over the Atlantic than it does to um, run it through a pipeline that goes straight over land from, you know, Ukraine to um, Germany, to Austria, to the west of West, the rest of Western Europe. Um, so it's Yeah, it's funny. It has a lot more of a direct impact on Western Europe than just the country of Ukraine alone. Yeah, talking to Lindsay Kaiser, we're going to talk exactly about that infrastructure, uh, how we ship things, how we can and can't do things, how it could be beneficial to America to export this energy, the policies that are behind that. We're going to continue with Lindsay Kaiser right after this on Hertel. Welcome back to Hertel. We're having a great conversation with our friend Lindsay Kaiser, uh, talking gas, natural gas, uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, again, I'm a logistics and transportation guy. I like to make this stuff into A and B stuff because that's the world I lived in. It's served me well in dealing with politics because you get to cut through some of the noise. The fact of the matter is this stuff has a process to it. And it's great that the president was saying we're going to ship all this natural gas. You already touched on it, though. Now we're talking transatlantic shipping. We can do all that. But it takes time. Uh, the shipping routes and logistics that are going to take months. 
And like you mentioned a minute ago, let's talk infrastructure here for a minute because we have seven uh, liquefied natural gas processing plants on the East Coast and the Gulf Coast um, for obvious reasons. (laughs) Because when we're talking about pipelines in America, pipelining that stuff to the ports is the part of that that you need to really export this energy. So now that they want, we mentioned the deal for 15 uh, billion cubic meters of gas going to Europe. They want to scale that up to 50 billion by next year. But to really do stuff like that, you have to have the pipeline infrastructure and you have to have the port infrastructure. And this isn't Biden's fault because he's only been in office for years. We have neglected this kind of infrastructure for decades for various reasons, from economical to political to environmental. Sure. These are the things that you have to be doing all the time ahead of time, because when the crisis comes, they're years away and it could have been a solution right now, isn't it? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're right, of course, that the lack of pipeline infrastructure is something that has sort of dominated American energy policy since long before President Biden was in office. Um, But it certainly doesn't help that he has fought tooth and nail to keep the Keystone XL pipeline closed, um, something that a lot of, you know, congressmen have fought to reopen, um, including Congressman Pete Stauber from Minnesota, Um, And, you know, the thing about reopening Keystone XL is that it would really improve natural gas availability in the U.S. um, And it would also help Europe avoid, you know, supporting a brutal regime to maintain its own energy security. Um, But, yeah, it's 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 a tough look. And it's also interesting because it goes back to this thing about optics. Right. It's like, okay, so you really do want to help Western Europe get its oil and gas, um, you know, imported from the U.S. That's fantastic. And yet you won't support the infrastructure that's necessary in order to make that pipeline, you know, dream like a reality. We talk about the pipelines and I understand there's environmental concerns, um, but when the pipelines though, and I know they, there can be leaks and things like that. The, the idea of the pipelines is you get it off the roads and you don't have to truck this stuff and it flows smoother. There there's environmental and car. In fact, the, the one that they were trying to put through Appalachian, that would have been carbon neutral if that's something you're really worried about the way they had designed that one. It is more environmentally friendly. At some point, perfect becomes the enemy of the good on the environmental stuff on this stuff with the pipelines. Right. And I'm, I'm look, they just tried to put, they're putting one through West Virginia right now. There's parts of West Virginia I I'm don't sure. want to pipeline through because, you know, it, I'm literally where I grew up. They got <laughs> my hometown right now. They got them just stacked up, all the pipeline stuff. I get all that. But then the opposite side of that is we we live in a globally unified world now. And yes, right. when Russia invades Ukraine, now we're going to pay for it because we didn't have our up. Where do you think we find that balance? Because there, there I don't want to blow it off because there's legitimate environmental concerns with pipelines. There's economical sure. concerns with pipelines. But there's also this alternative of if you make yourself dependent on bad people at some point, it is going to burn you. At some point, we got to make some compromises here somewhere, don't we? Absolutely. And I think, you know, one funny thing that something you mentioned reminded me of is that President Biden has gone on to say to meet with, um, I believe it's Saudi officials um, and other officials in Middle Eastern countries about securing more oil and natural gas resources. Um, And it sort of makes you wonder, you know, are these the nations that we'd like to pair up with if we if pairing up with Russia? Right, resulted in an invasion of Ukraine. Um, and now we want to go pair up with the Middle East, not exactly a very democratically friendly place, not exactly a place that cares a lot about the environment, historically speaking, um, instead of, you know, making sure that if we 
if we pipe this oil and gas at home, we can put on our own environmental controls, right? If we produce it at home, you know, refine it at home, we can control the way that it would impact the environment much more than if we just buy it from somebody else. So I, that's, you know, I think it's another question, another question that goes into understanding the balance between improving domestic energy supply or buying it elsewhere and not having that environmental burden on our own land. See, I like the way you put it is important too, because you wrote about this when you were writing an international policy digest about natural gas being America's greatest weapon, weapon kind of, a <laughs> you know, an analogy there, right. but it really is the case here because Putin has weaponized his energy sector. Uh, we already know the mess we've been in the Middle East for decades and decades over oil. Um, at some point, clean energy will be weaponized by people. It, I fear it will be because China dominates the raw minerals that we need to make batteries for all this electrical vehicle. The idea Absolutely. that these things are not going to be weaponized at some point is foolish. Shouldn't we treat resources like natural gas, like you know the raw minerals that are needed for batteries for the EV stuff that's coming in the future? Right. Shouldn't we treat these things as strategically important geopolitically and not? To, I think we compartmentalize this stuff too much like, well, this is an energy issue or this is an environmental issue. Shouldn't this be more of a holistic may not be the right term, but this stuff all goes together. Shouldn't we approach it that way so that we're seeing it in a healthier manner of like, look, we need to make a little bit of a compromise on the environmental part of this. And we're going to make a little bit of a compromise on this because we're going to keep us out of a geopolitical war. Shouldn't we be thinking yeah. about it more that way instead of just getting in our niche little policy sectors and not putting it all together into a complete picture? Absolutely. Absolutely, Andrew. And it's funny, I don't think anything has made that more clear than the Russian invasion of Ukraine that we are seeing reflected in prices for energy you know, to heat our homes and gasoline to power our cars. I think the fact that this is a geopolitical issue is, is you know, reflected in those higher prices that Americans are paying every single day. Um, even though we have not sent any troops to Ukraine, we have sent limited military weaponry to Ukraine, if that, and we've sent maybe humanitarian aid. That's about it. Um, and the president said, you know, we aren't going to get fully involved. And yet it feels like everyone's fully involved in this crisis, just given, you know, the uh, skyrocketing inflation um, and higher prices for energy at home and for our cars. So, yeah, I think it's more evident now than ever that energy, you know, and whether it's clean, nuclear, you know, oil, gas, even coal, um, it's it's a geopolitical issue. It's not just an environmental issue or um, an energy, you know, only issue. Let's we've talked about the big picture. And let's take this down to the, the people level, the personal level. Um, something that I'm concerned about and a lot of other people are, this looks like it's going to be a long war, especially with the redeployment that the Russians are. They're not retreating their redeployment, folks. Don't let anybody tell you different. Uh, this is going to be a long <laughs> war. Um, again, this is 40 percent of the energy that especially the natural gas that Europe needs. Go look at a map. Uh, Europe is on the longitude with Maine. They're a lot more north of us. Winter is a right. big deal in Europe, uh, not to go Game of Thrones, but winter is coming. I know it's you know April, but we're going to get into May, June, July, and all of a sudden you're into winter. Yep. This is going to really, one of the reasons they announced this deal with President Biden is they're trying to get this stuff online this summer because they're looking at the metrics. They're looking at the supplies. They're looking at the, the price of this stuff, and they're seeing winter coming. Uh, this is going to be a very ugly thing in Europe come winter if there isn't some pickup on some of these things. So we're talking Certainly. about sanctions and supplies. 
there's a lot of people that are going to get real, real cold come this winter if something doesn't give. And then you're going to be into a secondary crisis of, you know, cold, cold elderly people, folks that yeah. don't have energy for the winter. Talk about the human aspect of this, because when we're talking big policy, sometimes we lose that. This is how people heat their homes. This is how people cook their food, especially in Europe, which is gas dominant still. Um, right. Talk about that part of it, because that's what's going to be the headlines in August, September, October, when the panic sets in, if we don't do something now to try to fix this, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, I feel like I'm in a place of luxury to just sit here and complain about higher gas prices and higher energy prices, but at least we still have it. It's still being, you know, pumped into, you know, the gas stations and, and pumped into our homes. Um, but there are a lot of people in Ukraine and in the surrounding Central European regions that can't say the same and certainly won't be able to say the same in the winter if you know, if the U.S. doesn't increase its exports and if we can't get this situation, well, maybe it's not our problem, but if someone can't get this situation in Ukraine under control. Um, and I think, you know, there's another aspect of natural gas that we haven't touched on yet, Andrew, which is that it's used to make fertilizer um, in a lot of instances, which, of course, helps grow crops. And we are currently in the U.S. already experiencing a bit of a food shortage um, and higher food prices. Um, and then globally, you know, without having natural gas to make fertilizer, you simply just cannot grow food. Um, and so while we may see it as higher prices in the grocery store, there are a lot of countries that rely on food exports from the US, from Russia, and from a lot of Western European nations, um, especially, you know, those in like sub-Saharan Africa that simply just will not have food if we continue to see this shutdown and, and you know, lack of supply of natural gas. Yeah, there's a great parallel with how we treat energy to how we treat in our agricultural sector, too, because they're already talking about famine in Africa, uh, parts yeah. of the Middle East, parts of uh, the subcontinent and Southeast Asia. That's where Ukraine grain goes and Russian grain, too. They, right. they outpour it. That's where that goes. And it ain't going to go there. And they're talking famine. This is going to kill a <laughs> lot of people. This is going to kill a lot of people that ain't going to make the news because it's not bombs. Uh, one more thing. Right. Kind of put a bow on this. We're talking to Lindsay Kaiser. Uh, great conversation on energy. You, you kind of touched on it, but I want to come back to it as a way to kind of yeah. summarize this conversation. People are looking at energy differently now because we have this evil, you know, it's so clear-cut evil right in front of our faces, but we also have short attention spans. What do you think the focus should be? We, we've learned this with other issues. You pick whatever, you know, whether it's social justice or diploma, diplomacy overseas or whatever, we got a short sure. attention span. What yeah. policy things should we be hammering right now, like in the next couple of months before the election when nothing's going to get done this fall? Of These are the policies we need to put in while everybody sees this clearly right in front of them. What do you think is one or two things we should really be focusing on energy-wise? That is a great question. Um, the first thing would probably be to ramp up domestic energy exports and also supply. Um, there is, you know, currently a moratorium on using public lands um, with energy and gas or natural gas and oil resources. Um, I think, and of course, you know, that's done with sort of the climate in mind, but a problem like this, you know, a, a, what some people have called the third world war, right. It's, it just seems like it's a bit more timely and impending than, um, you know, our climate change crisis. Um, so I think, yeah, increasing the amount of American natural gas supply would be first, um, whether it's allowing Keystone Pipeline to go back into business, um, providing the infrastructure funding necessary to complete all of the pipelines that, you know, projects that were started and then abandoned by different, you know, administrations, 
let me ask you this then real quick. Yeah. Um, the thing about the public lease lands, what explain that to folks real quick. Cause they hear that all the time. It's like, Oh, drilling on public land. Th- these leases are long-term they're existing. They're already there, but there's two components right. of it because they're there, but then they still have to be developed by the companies, but then there's still a lot of regulatory layers that the government puts on top of that. There, there's a big dance that goes on there. Just kind of explain that to folks real quick. So they understand what we're talking about. Yeah. Like when you, um, when you have like a lease um, to sort of get oil or natural gas out from public lands, um, that lease may be, you know, very, very long, like it might be years and years long, but because um, different administrations have different priorities when it comes to energy, um, there's a lot of red tape that has to be gone through and has to be dealt with in order to actually access and tap into those reserves. Um, And you know, it's like every four to eight years, you've got someone telling you, you could either tap into it or you can't, right? And that's not very sustainable. Um, that certainly isn't helping us move toward a more effective energy supply, you know, like regulated and, and consistent and sustainable energy supply. Um, and it also doesn't help us when countries like Russia, who are huge energy suppliers and producers, decide that they just want to short shrift the rest of the world um, from things like energy, which as you know, as people living in the West and most of the world, like we need energy on a daily basis. We need it all the time. We need heat or we need gas. Um, so yeah, they're definitely just, we need to focus a lot more on being able to tap into those reserves that we have, whether or not they're on public lands, um, get through that red tape um, that has caused years of years of like poor supply and confusion surrounding what we have access to and what we don't. Um, and get energy back in the hands of Americans at a reasonable price. Yeah, that's important what you just said there, because that's the that's the uh, that's the motto for foreign policy is you have to be consistent and coherent. Our energy policy has not been consistent and coherent, and it needs to be. No. Lindsay Kaiser, great work today. Appreciate the conversation. We'll have you back, but until we get you back, uh, let folks know where they can follow you or your writing and your social media, so they can keep track of you until we get to talk to you again. Yeah, it, it was such a pleasure speaking with you, Andrew. Um, you're welcome to come follow me on Twitter at Kaiser underscore Lindsay. Um, and also on the Young Voices website, you can just search up Lindsay Kaiser. But this was great. Yeah, we're happy to have you. Um, we will definitely have you back. Uh, enjoy <laughs> summers in Michigan, which are wonderfully pleasant because you pay for it all yes. winter long. My, my old company was headquartered in Ann Arbor. Going up there in January was always fun. Uh, but oh, Lindsay, yeah. <laughs> Lindsay Kaiser, great job today. Appreciate the conversation. And we'll talk more. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you, man. back to herd tell we're just going to mention this in passing because it's a developing story and i want to get somebody on to maybe talk about this that knows it way better than i do but uh there's trouble brewing in pakistan always a volatile part of the word uh imran khan uh who is in charge there uh the pakistani supreme court i'm reading from al jazeera here is looking into the legality of prime minister imran khan's unexpected move over the weekend to block a parliamentary vote against him and then call for a snap general election. The deputy speaker of parliament, a member of Khan's own party, threw out the no confidence motion that Khan had widely been expected to lose, ruling that it was part of a foreign conspiracy 
and unconstitutional. The court's five-member bench, headed by the country's chief justice, has adjourned the proceedings until Tuesday. Uh, legal experts have now said the court rules on Khan's move could have major implications for democracy in Pakistan, where no prime minister has yet fulfilled a full term and where the military has ruled for nearly half a century of the country's history. Uh, it goes through some of the different outcomes. Uh, the court can legitimize Khan's actions. The court can overturn Khan's actions. Uh, Khan can actions deemed illegal, but polls happen anyway. They've already called for an election to occur. So the court may just punt on this, not let it interfere and let the election take care of it. No matter which way you slice it, this is something we need to pay very close attention to. Uh, part of our actions in Afghanistan were always going to be tied to Pakistan. Pakistan, of course, has long-running rivalries with India, the world's largest democracy that they have shooting conflicts with frequently over Kashmir and other regions. Uh, Pakistan is sandwiched in a very important part of the world. They are uh, supposed to be one of our allies. Sometimes they are. They can also be a rival in a lot of areas. Sometimes they are. It's a complicated part of the world that we need to keep an eye on, even with all the noise of the news cycle and all the other international news like Ukraine and Russia. Pakistan will have something to say about that as well. Important stuff. We always want to mention things going on in the world. Keep your eye on Pakistan over the coming weeks. We'll do more Hertel right after this. Tell you know we always try to end on a little bit of a lighter note. We got to cover a lot of heavy topics here. We like to get into some human interest stuff or good thing. This story is amazing. Washington Post. You need to read the entire thing, but they have found this gentleman. Uh, his name's Vaughn. Uh, he works as a carpet cleaner. He's forty six years old. His name's Vaughn Smith, and they're not even sure how many languages this man has can speak. They found him to be a hyper polygot. He can speak almost any language he listens to and studies for a little bit of time. He very humbly told the writer, uh, Jessica Contrera, uh, in the Washington Post, that he speaks probably about eight languages, but it gets a lot deeper than that when they went through it. Uh, Vaughn glances at me. He still understands his ability. This is from the piece. By his count, it's actually 37 more languages. With at least 24, he speaks well enough to carry on lengthy conversations. He can read and write in eight alphabets and scripts. He can tell stories in Italian and Finnish and American Sign Language. He's teaching himself indigenous languages from Mexico's Natala, the Montana Salish, which is an Indian language. The quality of his accents in Dutch and Catalan dazzle people from the Netherlands and Spain in a city where diplomats and embassies abound, meaning D.C., where interpreters can command six-figure salaries at the State Department or the International Monetary Fund, where language proficiency is resume rocket fuel, Vaughn is a savant with a secret, a real live polygot, Kelly said, one of the experts. I have heard the word, meaning a person who can speak several languages before meeting Vaughn, but Kelly, who dabbles in Cantonese, Mandarin, and beer in most languages, has seen polygots on YouTube promising anyone they can be multilingual if they try. Far more unusual are the world's hyperpolygots, people who, by one expert's definition, can speak 11 languages or more. The higher the number, the rarer the person. But there have been documented cases such as linguistic legends, each one raising questions about the limits of human potential. The same questions I had about Vaughn. They actually put this out on a chart. Um, he speaks uh, 
eight or nine languages, completely fluent, conversational. If he meets somebody of a place, he can learn the language and pick it up very, very quickly. This guy's amazing, and he's a very humble dude, a hardworking guy. He works for his brother's carpet cleaning business. Um, they profile him, but I want to go down to the end of this piece because the way he gets these languages is really amazing. By the way, there's a great story in here where he's cleaning um, the apartment of some Portuguese speakers and they're bad mouthing him in Portuguese, kind of making fun of him, saying he's not going to do a good job, whatever. Uh, and at the end of the, the cleaning, he turns around, looks at them and in Portuguese said, yeah, I did the Portuguese ambassador's house last week in Portuguese. And he said the guy's face was just absolutely priceless after running him down. But anyway. It's, I want you to hear how he talks about this. They actually MRI this guy's brain, find out that it's actually very not overly active when he does languages because he's so good at it. It's effortless to him. But I want you to hear how he looks at these words. It's possible that Vaughn was born with his language areas being smaller and more efficient. This is off the MRI scan. It's possible that his brain started out like mine, but because he has learned so many languages while it was still developing, his dedica de dedication transformed his anatomy. It could be both. Until researchers can scan language learners as they grow, there's no way to know. But even without the answer, even before we had the scans back, Vaughn had what he came to MIT for. I got to practice Lithuanian today. Back in the piece, he actually starts talking to the guy that's doing the test in Lithuanian just off the top of his head. He says to a friend on the phone as we navigate Boston's airport, Catalan, Spanish, Russian, and a little bit of Korean. He's bouncing as he talks about all the connections he made in a single day with researchers and the strangers he's introduced himself to. This is why I discovered getting to know Vaughn. By putting in the effort to learn someone's language, you're showing them that you value who they truly are. I wonder if Vaughn will ever see that same value in himself. At that very moment, I asked myself that question. Vaughn tells his friend on the phone, quote, I just feel like work-wise, I got to do something else. I need to figure out how and what to do. It's not going to get better unless I do something. I've never heard him talk like that before. At our gate, I ask him how he's feeling. He is thinking about the way the Harvard and MIT neuroscientists spends the day asking him questions, not just for their research, but because they wanted to understand how, in their own language learning, they could be more like him. It's really comforting, Vaughn says. I always wonder, it's like, how do I compare on a larger scale? What if this is really nothing to be excited about, but they'd be excited and now he could be too. I'm not some worthless person, he says. Then he pulls out his phone and opens his Duolingo app. He's on a 330-day streak of practicing Welsh and he isn't about to break it. What an amazing story. Go read the whole piece. Washington Post. Uh, it's titled The Remarkable Brain of a Carpet Cleaner Who Speaks 24 Languages. And it has a cool little graphic where the languages changes to the different languages. What an amazing man. God bless him. That's the end of our good news for the day. Somebody who has an amazing brain was just waiting for somebody to discover it. And that'll do it for this edition of Herd Tell. We hope we picked your brain and you learned something from the day. Uh, once again, if you missed yesterday's episode, the entire episode with Delegate Danielle Walker, a lot of strong response. We're very proud of that interview. Please go check that out on the YouTube page, on all the podcasting platforms, on the Big Talkers Facebook page. We'd really want you to make sure you get to see that. If you missed anything from today's show or any other show, make sure you're subscribed. Facebook, all the podcasting platforms, just pop in Hardtel or my name, Andrew Donaldson. It will come right up for you. You can reach out to us, show at gmail.com, show at the Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Might even make it part of the show. Be nice, keep your bearing. You never know. And until we see you again tomorrow, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll talk to you again for our next Hurt Tell. 
All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money. 